pursuit of power, the problem of power, and the secret of true power. So first of all, the pursuit of power. And I want you to picture the scene. It's an Italian restaurant. It's Islington. It's about May 1994. The Labour Party leader, John Smith, has just died. And two men are sitting at a corner table. Only one of them is drinking the Chianti, and the atmosphere is tense. Tony Blair, the then Shadow Home Secretary, is laying out the terms of a deal to the then Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown. And he's offering Brown wide powers over domestic policy in any future government led by Blair and a commitment to only serve two terms as Prime Minister. And that's in return for Brown not standing against him in the forthcoming Labour leadership contest that was to follow then. And no doubt many of us have heard multiple accounts of the Blair-Brown years in number 10 and 11's uh, since I've since described that, that incredible power contest that took place between the two men. Uh, Anthony Sullivan, Brown's biographer, puts it this way in his book. By the time New Labour came to power on May 1st, 1997, Brown was already seething, believing the crown of Labour leader which he'd hankered after all his life to have been unjustly stolen from him by Blair after John Smith died in May 1994. For years, he plotted with his close cabal how to get rid of Blair, a man he considered a lightweight, devoid of ideological commitment, a mere popinjay strutting upon the Labour stage, his stage. Now, in the Westminster context, one doesn't need to rack one's brains too hard to think of uh, other more contemporary examples of the pursuit of power. The walking blonde ambition that is Boris Johnson, for instance, springs to mind quite readily, who apparently told his brothers and sisters when they were growing up that he wanted to be king of the world. <laughs> but, but this passage this morning is a stark reminder that the pursuit of power is actually a universal human experience. And in, in the verses that follow 32 to 34, that, sorry, that come just before the passage we've just had read, if you have a look at those, Jesus has just told his disciples there that he's about to be killed in Jerusalem. And in response to this, as, uh, as our passage begins, verse 35, you'd expect some kind of sympathy, perhaps, from the disciples, or, or, or at least some kind of questions, follow-up questions about, well, why have you got to go and die? But no, in verse 37, James and John can't think of anything else but what positions of power they're going to have when Jesus comes in his glorious kingdom. And by this stage in Mark's Gospels, Mark's Gospel, the disciples know that Jesus is a very powerful figure, perhaps even the Messiah, God's promised king, who would bring in a great kingdom of justice and peace. But all James and John can think about is what cabinet positions, essentially, they're going to have in this glorious kingdom that's coming. They effectively want to be Home Secretary and Chancellor. And actually, exactly the same thing is going on right now amongst the MPs who are close to Boris Johnson. They're manoeuvring for positions in a future cabinet. 
And if you look at verse 41, the rest of the disciples are no better either. They're annoyed that James and John are basically outmaneuvering them. And stop for a moment. These are Jesus' own disciples we're looking at here. And uh, I suggest that all of us are like this to some extent. All of us seek power in our lives in some ways. And our motives for power are mixed. Of course, some are very good. Power can enable us to make a really positive difference to the people and the world around us in so many ways. But if we're honest, just think about it for a moment. Power can also be a way of achieving uh, approval and recognition in life. It can be a way of uh, acquiring things that we want, uh, of acquiring possessions or, or influence uh, or relationships. And the more I've thought about this, I've thought it actually can be a, a defensive strategy as well. We seek power to try and protect ourselves and make our lives secure and comfortable because we're aware that life is full of vulnerability and we try to use power to, to try and uh, to protect our health, uh, to give our children the very best education possible, to live in a safe place. And the more that, the more that we think that we have the power to, uh, to, to guard against these uncertainties and uh, dangers of life, we think we can protect ourselves against them. So this, this pursuit of power in lots of different ways is a universal human drive. It's not, it's not just for those of the, in politics, it's for the disciples and it's for us in different ways. So the pursuit of power. Secondly, the problem of power. Now there are some, some common sense observations you can make about why this pursuit of power is problematic in life. And the first might be this. The, the, the idea that we're actually powerful to control our lives is actually uh, an illusion. If, we're, if we are successful in life, we tend to think that we've achieved this success uh, largely through our own efforts. And I don't want to diminish hard work and determination for a moment. They are necessary to achieving, but they're not sufficient on their own. There are many other factors, if you think about it, that determine our success in life. Let's face it, we didn't choose our genes. We didn't choose our childhood environment. We didn't choose the wealth and capability of our parents, or the time and, or the place that we were born in and, and, and living. You know, actually, when you think about it, most of what sets the course of our lives, actually, we don't have any control over or power over at all. Um, Donald Trump's an example of falling for this illusion. So in the 2016 presidential campaign, he talked a lot about being a self-made man who'd become rich and powerful through his own hard work and brilliant business acumen. What he admitted to mention was that he started out by inheriting a multi-million dollar property empire from his father. So in short, we're not the infinite powerful creators that we like to think that we are. We're actually finite, dependent creatures, largely dependent on what's been given to us. So it's an illusion. The second, the second problem about the pursuit of power is that we're constantly vulnerable to factors that are, that are just beyond our control. Just ask Theresa May or David Cameron if you, if you get the chance. And actually, a month, month, the Monday morning of the Trump visit, which is a couple of weeks or so ago, I was cycling through Parliament, 
That's, no, not through Parliament. <laughs> Cycling through Hyde Park on the way to Parliament. I'd stopped at a pedestrian crossing, and this jogger came up next to me, and I just looked, looked at him, and it was David Cameron. Um, I didn't really know, it was a bit awkward. I mean, I had met him a couple of times, but it was, I didn't really know him well enough to kind of start up an awkward conversation. So I just kind of let the moment lie. And there were a couple of security guards behind him. And then when the, the lights went green, and then he, he went across the road, and followed by his security guards a few paces behind. And it just struck me that, you know, there, there, he, was, there he was. If something, three years ago, if things had gone differently, that very morning, you know, he would have been at the center of the action, hosting Trump, uh, you know, uh, with the Queen, absolutely at the center of power. And then suddenly, there he was, totally out of the action, out of power, cutting a slightly sort of lonely, sad figure in jogging in Hyde Park on his own that morning. And for the rest of us, who are relatively less famous and powerful, we too are constantly vulnerable to factors beyond our control, that our power can be taken away by the actions of other people, by sickness, and ultimately, ultimately by death itself, of course. But there's a much more serious problem about our pursuit of power that the Bible speaks of from beginning to end. And that's that in the final analysis, our pursuit of power also separates us from the God who made us. So if we spend our lives trying to use power to secure our own reputation, success, and self-sufficiency, we basically fool ourselves into thinking that we can do it all on our own, that we don't need God. I used to live round the corner of Bethnal Green from where the, the infamous Cray twins used to live and operate. And uh, in 1995, when Ronnie Cray died, he requested Sinatra's I Did It My Way to be played at his funeral. And it is still apparently the most popular song that people choose for their funerals, I Did It My Way. And it does basically sum up that idea. We all want to do it our way, independent from God. However, the problem is, is that the message of the Bible is that in the final analysis, actually, it's God who will do it his way. It's he who holds the power. The God of the Bible is the one who's given us life itself, who sustains our every breath, and before whom all of us one day will have to stand and give account. And C.S. Lewis, I think, puts it quite tellingly, and it's a, it's a line from his book, The Great Divorce, and he says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Our pursuit of power is illusory. It's vulnerable. And most, most serious of all, it, does, it leads us to declare independence from God, from the God who made us. And it's, it's, sober, it's sobering stuff to think about. However, Jesus in this passage has some wonderful news, both for the disciples and for us in verse 45. There he speaks of a power that can reunite us with the God who made us, and a power that can never be taken away by other people, by sickness or by death. And this is our final point this morning, the secret of true power. So let me just read verse 45 again. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses the language of the Roman marketplace here, where slaves could be freed by the payment of a ransom. And there are many famous ransoms that have been paid in more modern times, generally for wealthy business people or their children who've been kidnapped, some stretching to hundreds of millions of pounds. Apparently, the, the, the highest ransom price paid in history so far was for the last king of the Incas, whose name I, I really can't pronounce, but it was paid to the Spanish in Peru in 1533, valued in modern money at a billion pounds. And Jesus describes us here as people who need ransoming ourselves. If you think about it, if we've been created to love and worship God, then it stands to reason that we owe him everything. And all the religions of the world, apart from Christianity, teach us that it's by our good works and our religious observance that we can basically pay back our own ransom to God and to get into his good books. Now Christianity turns all of that completely on its head. It says it's hopeless to think that we can pay back to God what we owe him. You know, our debt is infinite. There's no way we can pay it back. An incredible thing here in verse 45 is that Jesus is claiming that in giving his life in our place, he pays this infinite debt for us so that we can be forgiven. Or to put it, in a, uh, put it in another way, in the context of power, think about it. Jesus, the most powerful man who ever lived, actually gave up his power so that we can receive his true power. And what is that true power? Well, according to the Bible, true power is to know that we're infinitely loved by the God who made us. We're infinitely forgiven by the God who made us. And then, isn't that the greatest power a human being could possibly possess? If you possess that power, then you know the key verdict on your whole life is already in. Even before you've lived the rest of it, you know that you've been forgiven by the God who made you. I mean, what more do you need to know? That's the thing. And this means that once you grasp that, you can be truly liberated. A new power to not have to worry about recognition and success and influence and safety in life. Because those things, of course they, they matter to an extent, but they no longer matter ultimately in comparison to knowing the love and forgiveness of the God who's made us. So I, I want to ask a question to the person who would say they're following Christ here this morning. Step back for a moment and, and think, is this actually true for me in my daily life? Because if the disciples at this stage of their journey, living in such close, close proximity to Christ and his teaching, if they could miss this idea, then we certainly can ourselves. If we truly grasp this, this powerful love of God, it really will liberate us from looking inwards to our own interests and then turn us outwards to love and serve other people. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verses 43 and 44, when he said, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That being turned outwards to love and serve other people. So do you know that power in your everyday life? The power of turning outwards from yourself to serve 
other people in countless everyday ways. Do you know that freedom of self-forgetfulness? And if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian here this morning, but you're, but you're thinking about it, would you like to know that liberating power that God's forgiveness brings? And I think verses 46 to 52, at the end of our reading, give us a picture of how to receive this amazing, powerful forgiveness of God. So you get this blind man, Bartimaeus, who he wants to receive his sight. And, and notice what, first of all, what he doesn't say to Jesus when he approaches him. He doesn't, he doesn't say, Jesus, what must I do to receive my sight? He's, no, he, simply he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's a really powerful contrast back to the disciples and the attitude that they come with uh, in the first bit of our, our passage. Whereas they were kind of grasping for power, the blind man totally knows that he's, he's powerless. And all he does, he simply cries out to God, have mercy on me. And it's a really wonderful picture about how the Bible describes God's mercy. It can't be earned. We simply need to say to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all it takes to know the liberating power of God's forgiveness. Let me finish by telling you about a politician again who came to understand this basic power of God's forgiveness. William Wilberforce. He became an MP in 1780. He was very ambitious and he got into Parliament basically through his private wealth and social connections in the first place. And he described in his um, autobiography his first years in Parliament uh, like this. He said, he said the first years of Parliament, I did nothing to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. Brilliantly put. However, after five years of being in Parliament, he, he became a Christian. And he was turned totally inside out by the knowledge that Christ had paid this ransom price for his forgiveness. And it's incredible to see what then happened in that man's life. He stopped serving himself and he started looking outwards to go and serve other people. And the lives of millions of people around the world were transformed as he went on to secure the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. An achievement that the historian G.M. Trevelyan has described as a turning point in the history of the world. So I want to just end by asking the simple question, wouldn't you want that kind of power? Let's pray as we close. Living God, we confess that we do naturally use power to secure our, our own identity, our, our recognition, and our security in life in lots of different ways. And we thank you for Jesus Christ the most powerful person who ever lived gave up his power that we might receive the true power of your forgiveness. And I pray please give us the honesty and the humility to admit that we need 
the power of your forgiveness and to ask for your mercy. And finally, I pray that all of us would know, know that power of your mercy and uh, that it would turn us outwards to go out from here to love and serve others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.